This week, in honour of our friend, Craig Brown, we are re-releasing our podcast episode with him. Craig sadly passed away this week. He was a wonderful man with terrific character and we feel fortunate to have had him in our lives. Craig was the last man to take Scotland to World Cup finals and is still Scotland's longest serving manager. The outpouring of messages for Craig shows what a quality person and manager he was. Recently, we re-released our book with a foreword from Craig, which is something we will forever cherish. Craig, we hope this episode showcased your ability to move people with your stories, your character, and your care, all while showing your love for the game. Thank you, and rest in peace. Craig, after playing for Rangers, Dundee, Falkirk, you entered into management with Clyde in 1977. You then coached various Scotland youth teams and was eventually appointed Scotland manager in 93. And now, under your guidance, Scotland qualified for the Euros in 96 and in 98, the FIFA World Cup. Uh, And then you later managed Preston North End, Motherwell and Aberdeen. Uh, You retired from management in 2013 and now currently a non-exec director of Aberdeen. Now, with all that wealth of knowledge and experience of working with teams, how have you dealt with dressing rooms that are filled with strong characters? I just didn't. I heard the whole thing except your last question. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Just the last statement. So in in all that experience that you've got in working with dressing rooms, being around characters... How do you, have you dealt with strong characters within the dressing room environments? Well, you, you said the, the teams I played for. I, I was signed by Rangers. I didn't play for Rangers. There's a big difference. Oh. <laughs> I was a young boy and I signed uh, as a young fellow. I was, I was allegedly the boy wonder, you know, and the, the, all the teams wanted me. And I, I think with hindsight, I made a mistake. I signed, first of all, for Rangers. Uh, and I wasn't good enough, so I didn't ever get a game, and I was three years there, and I went on loan to Dundee. Uh, so it was easy for me to speak to the high-profile players and to be comfortable because I was in a dressing room of high-profile players, and I was friendly with them. Although I wasn't a first-team player at Rangers, I was friendly with the guys. I could beat them at golf, you know, <laughs> and I could go to the horse racing with them. <laughs> but... Uh, and I was, you know, quite friendly with a lot of the good players. Uh, the, the two captains they had in my time was Bobby Shearer and Eric Caldo. They both stayed in Hamilton. I stayed in Hamilton. So I shared the car with them going to training. So uh, I was never overawed by an international player. The Rangers were a top team at the time, winning everything. And they were full of international players. So they were friends of mine. So when I eventually ended up with the international team job, I didn't think an international player was uh, a god or anything like that. I wasn't in any way overawed. Uh, I was respectful, but I wasn't overawed. And therefore, I was comfortable in the environment with uh, top-class players. Now, when I went to Dundee, Dundee had an outstanding team and won the Scottish Championship, got to the semi-final of the European Cup, and that's quite an achievement for a fairly provincial team from Scotland. I mean, we're talking about the semi-final beating the German champions 8-1 <laughs> in the way they are beating the Portuguese champions, Sporting Lisbon. 
Cologne, Sporting, Lisbon, beating the Belgian champions, uh, Anderlecht, and losing only in the semi-final to AC Milan. So I was used to, uh, I would say, a high-profile environment as a young player. And although I wasn't a top player, I was in that environment. And therefore, I was always uh, respectful of uh, good players, but never in awe of them. So I was comfortable. So, Craig, when you were the head coach for Scotland, especially preparing for international tournaments, you select a squad of players. How do you deal with bringing in players who have started every week for the club side, but then are sat on the bench for Scotland <laughs> and not, not playing? Well, I think that's uh, arguably that's the biggest problem. Or it could be the biggest problem that uh, you've got players who are stars with their clubs and you bring them to the international squad and you, you put them on the bench or you don't even strip them at all. You know, if I was at five uh, major tournaments with Scotland on the staff. Uh, I was in charge at two of them, but uh, I was assistant at other three, uh, the three World Cups. And that was in the, first of all, Sir Alec, or it was only Alec at the time, took me to Mexico on the staff. And then I went to Italy, in the staff. That was 86 with Alec Ferguson, 90 with Andy Roxburgh. And I had the job myself in 98. And we've only ever been, Scotland, I've only ever been to two European championships until now. And that was 92 in uh, Sweden and 96 in England. And I was at both of those. So I was used to being in the environment, uh, the international team environment. And I was obviously observing when I wasn't the manager. And I was there three times before I became the manager and I was on the staff and I sensed the atmosphere in the, in the camp. And you could tell that sometimes the top players, uh, when they're not picked, they can be a bit sulking. You know, they can, I don't think they were ever, I didn't ever see a Scottish player being resentful, openly resentful, but you could tell that they weren't too happy. So one of the, first meetings I had with any team, whether it was an international team or a club team, the first meeting I had was concerning substitutions because you've got so many. And now with the coronavirus, there are now nine substitutes. So it's quite an undertaking. You have a management problem. You've got nine on the bench. Now with the international arena, you've got more on the bench than you've got in the park. So you've got 11 starting the game. And you've another 12, you've 23 players now, you've another 12 on the bench. <laughs> so my first team meeting invariably is, tell me, sit, sit the team down, have a chat and say, what are the reasons for substituting a footballer? Why do you get substituted in the game? And they, they look at you, you know, and I say, come on. And I say, give me a number, how many? And the, the players will say three, two, I say, come on, what are the reasons for something? Now, let's see how many we can get. And I'll give you a, a, an instance. I was working at Fulham for a while with Chris Coleman, who was the manager. And I was international representative. I was looking for players internationally. But, you know, he phoned me one night and he said, oh, I substituted a player at Newcastle. And he, he came off sulking. And he said, I, I was so angry. I followed him up into the dressing room. I'll not tell you the name of the player. <laughs> he said, I followed him in. And he said he took his jersey off in disgust, you know, and he was 
he was a bit, you know, he came off, he could cheer, he, he was, he'd be quite uh, truculent. And he, were, and he says, I had, and I had my, my rubber football boots on, he didn't hear me. And he opened the dressing room, the game's still going on. And he opened the dressing room door and he stood there with his jersey off and I saw the bare stomach and I just punched him in his stomach. <laughs> and down he went and I had a kick at him. I said, don't you ever do that to me again. And he phoned me and he said, I think I did the wrong thing, Craig. I says, no, I think if I was your size, I'd have done that as well. <laughs> but I said, have you a substitution policy? Do they know, do they know what the, the rules are? And they, he said, well, well, they know that to shake hands with a guy and on. And, and I said, yeah, but what about, uh, what about the rest? How do they behave? He says, well, I said, I'll tell you what, we have a, when we have a next team meeting, let's discuss it. So at the next team meeting, in the mid I think in the Monday, up went a, a clip chart there and we got somebody to write, somebody with good handwriting, reasons for substitutions. Now, how many reasons I asked? And they said three, four. I said, let's see how many we can get. And we got 11 reasons for substituting a player. Now I'll shortcut this talk because I, can, I could sit here and we could go through them all, but. The, 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 I think I've got 12 reasons now. I've got another one. Uh, 12 for taking a player off. And they always think, or invariably the crowd think, the players think, he's either hurt or he's playing badly. He's having a poor game. But there are other reasons. So I'll just rattle down them if, if that's helpful. You know, the first thing obviously is for uh, injury. It has to come off. Or tactical. You're making a tactical change. Another reason. A very important one is disobedience. You've told him what to do, and he's not doing it. He's to mark this player, or he's to every throw in is to be down the line, and he's throwing it infield. Whatever is uh, disobedient, so you get him off. Another one is uh, he's on a yellow card, and he's the way he's playing. He's likely to get another yellow and be sent off. So you you substitute him. Another one is uh, near the end of the game, you're running the clock down. Another one is that uh, he scored three. He's done very well. You want them to get a personal acknowledgement from the crowd. So you do that. There is also the negative one in that one, that uh, the crowd is getting on to him. And I've had it in the international team with a very high-profile player. He made a few mistakes. And the crowd in Scotland was grumbling. They, they didn't particularly take to the guy. And they were, they were every time he got the ball. So to, for his own protection, actually, a very good player. And also for the team harmony, we would take him off for that. Uh, so you're running the clock down at the end of the game. You take them off for that. You've got uh, a penalty decider. You have a penalty. You have a better penalty kick player on the bench, or you have a very good penalty kick taker on the bench. So you make a substitution just at the end. If the one that worries everyone is you're taking them off for poor performance for a, for a very indifferent performance. There's another one. In some clubs, you only get the full bonus if you play. If you go on. Go on. I was at a club where the, the agreement was with the players that you get half bonus if you're on the bench, full bonus if you played. So if, if your team's winning comfortably and you've got a good couple of young lads on the bench there and you want to be kind to them and boost double their bonus, you put them on for that reason. Very interesting one uh, I said about... Uh, if, if it's a shootout, a penalty shootout, you have a better penalty taker. Van Gaal, the famous Dutch manager, he substituted his goalkeeper in the penalty shootout. 
So there was another reason. He had a better shot stopper on the bench. So the guy had played in goal in the whole game and he substituted him. So I think I'm going on and on here, but you can understand that it's not just a simple matter of saying, I have a poor game, I'll get him off. Or he's injured, I'll get him off. There's all those reasons. And when you're one of them running the clock down, I, the boys used to know, I would say, right, if we're winning this international match and uh, I'll be taking the strikers off and we've got, and we get maybe make two changes. And you see we're, we're ahead in the game. Get as far away as you can. <laughs> we had a guy, John McGinley, who Bolton Wanderers, I played for the Scottish team. And John was brilliant at it. When he thought he was going to be substituted, he would look over, he'd see the board getting ready, and he would get as far away as he could. So that <laughs> even, even no, he did it deliberately and uh, under instruction so that even the time it took him, Running the clock down, uh, and he came from uh, anyway. I'm sorry, I'm going on and on about the, the substitution thing, but it's, I think it's, I would recommend to any manager one of the first meetings he has is sit them down and decide about substitutions. Then, the very important thing is this when he comes off, don't shake hands with him, and you'll wonder why. You know, if you, if you look, if you watch Alec Ferguson, very seldom, if ever. Sir Alec would shake. Uh, I see Mourinho sometimes doesn't. Now, I say don't shake hands because one of the reasons we've spoken about is indiscipline. If I've told you to do something and you're not doing it and I'm taking you off, am I going to go and shake your hand? <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm not. And I want to be consistent so that if up in that, your father's up there watching your wife or whoever, I want to be consistent. If I'm taking Keith off or I'm taking David off, I'm the same, I'm taking you off because uh, I've got to, no handshake and they've got to know that and they accept, but you must have a handshake with a guy going on. And then when you sit down, what does a player say when he comes off? I, I always ask them that. And they always say the same thing. Look at, look at Mayor there, look at David, he's having that nightmare and he's taking me off you know and he loudly he says something like that he points in the picture look at him and I'm sitting here and they're resentful or this manager hasn't a clue just loud enough so that one of the coaching staff can hear so the rule when you come off you say nothing you sit there you can talk about the weather you can talk about where you're going tonight and you're on that bench but you don't talk about the game because it's inevitable if <laughs> you mention that game you're going to talk about uh, somebody else and, and you're going to be critical and that's the last thing we want. So you want to come off with uh, a decent handshake, decent body language, no sulking and be a supporter on the bench. And that's quite important that you're, you sit there and if you're a substitute from the start, you've got to be a supporting substitute. And if you're, if you're substituted, you've got to still there and uh, sit there and still hope that uh, the team does well. There are so many other aspects to that. You know, when I was a manager of a football team, and even now when I'm at a match, if somebody's sent to warm up, I look at him and I look at the way he warms up and I look at his attitude. And some of them warm up, you can tell they're resentful that they've not started and it's a sloppy warm up. And I wouldn't put them on then. And I used to say to the physio, take his pulse count. Seriously. <laughs> You're logging on until your pulse, pulse count is at least three quarters of your maximum. Mm. We, we know the maximum. 
pulse count for every player. So he comes back and uh, the physio takes his pulse count. Right, you're ready to go on. Now, sometimes it's, it's an urgent one. You haven't time to do that. You know, it's an injury and you're putting them on right away. But when you send a guy, if you watch a match, as I do every, <laughs> every time I'm watching, and players are sent to warm up, I think it's very, very significant the, the way they do it, their attitude, whether they're determined, whether they're anxious, whether they're up for it, or whether they're sulking that they weren't starting. And then you put them on. And I think he's got to have a handshake with uh, the guy going on, a cordial one and not a sloppy one. And mm -hmm. So I'm sorry I've gone on and on about oh, that. No, that's it's not the it's lovely That's probably the longest I've talked. I think it's a very, it's a very revealing and a very important uh, part of the game now, and it's even more important now with the coronavirus when we've got seven, eight, nine uh, substitute players, and then you're rotating and you're changing. The other thing I would say to them is, don't sit down and say, "Why me?" Don't come come off and ask the manager. I'll tell you on Monday, if it's a Saturday, if you want to know, come and ask me on Monday. But I think there's no need for an explanation and there's no time for an explanation. I'm the coach. I'm watching the game. I'm more interested in what's on the pitch than you sitting here uh, unhappily complaining. So don't come in and say, why me? If you want to ask me, ask me on Monday and I'll be happy to, to have an open door and I'll speak to you. But, uh, you know, and I think it's, it's very indicative of the atmosphere in a team, in a club, the substitution thing and the warm up. You know, I've seen, one of the clubs in Scotland had a bicycle. I've seen it in England as well. I think it came from, you know, Wigan, the rugby team, you know, they warm up on a bike. It's a different uh, muscle, uh, muscle group you're using when you're cycling on the bike, but it's to get the heart and lungs. The cardiovascular impact is the same. You get the heart and lungs to the right, uh, 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 not going to say temperature, but to the right amount of heartbeat. So, and you do that in the bike, and then you're ready to go on. So, but the way to do it is sometimes, and I've seen international teams, the Brazilian team, for example, have a warm-up coach for the substitutes. And his job is uh, watching how, and, and taking them out group at a time, and, and warming them up so that they're all ready. But one in particular, if you are ready, you get it going. And, and, and you want the guys to be very, you know, how should we say, uh, fit and ready to take part. And you want them to be grateful to you. Again, when I, I, I saw a very well-known Scottish player who sadly passed away, Tommy Burns, played for Celtic. And we put him on, Andy Roxburgh was the manager, I was the assistant. He put him on at Wembley against England. And I've never seen anything like it. He came over and he put two hands on Andy's shoulders. And he looked him in the eye and he said, I just want to thank you. And Andy said, thank me. He says, I thought you'd have been complaining. You weren't starting. He said, no, I want to thank you. A lifetime ambition to play for Scotland against England at Wembley. <laughs> and you're giving me that thrill. And he'd only 15 minutes to go, he put him on. It was a way back, a Rouse Cup game, I remember. We still lost the game, unfortunately. <laughs> but, but there was a guy who was grateful to be put on. And uh, he actually looked the manager in the eye and said to him, thanks. Most of them would be complaining that they weren't starting. 
he was complaining that uh, he was going on. So I'm sorry I went on so long about substitution, but it's a very revealing part of football. Now, look, it's been said, I don't know whether it's true or not, indirectly you got Maurice, Maurice Malpass, the sack as manager from... Yeah, well, I, well I, I've done some talks at Pro Licence. <laughs> I do talk at a Pro Licence course, uh, Keith, and uh, I was talking at a Pro Licence and Maurice was on the course. And uh, I told, I was telling this, my pet theme about substitutions. And, he, and he, afterwards he came to me and says, I just want you to know, you get me the sack. I said, what? He said, I was a manager of Swindon Town. And the chairman was sacking me. And I was t- I took your advice and I didn't shake hands with the guys. And, and the chairman said to me, and another, and another thing, you didn't show respect, enough respect to the players when you substituted them. <laughs> you didn't shake hands. Now, there's a moral there. The moral is, because you've got that rule in your club, I think you should tell the chairman, <laughs> the directors <laughs> and your chief executive, there are so many different layers of management now. There's sporting directors, there's chief executives, there's technical directors. There's all the, I think they should know the club policy. And if that's your policy, I'm not saying it should be, but if it is, it's, I think it's quite handy that the chairman knows so that he doesn't think. <laughs> so Morris says, yeah, you got me the sack. He was actually joking. He's a super guy, Morris Malpass. A lovely, a wonderful player. And a great. I thought he was a very good manager too, but it didn't work at Swindon. <laughs> now you've you've already mentioned Sir Alex. You worked with him at Aberdeen and at Scott for Scotland. How was that dynamic? How was the experience? Well, I think the dynamic of uh, working for someone or with someone. And I would like to think you work with rather than for. And I always say that, you know, You're I think right. it's the same as a throw in. There's a throw in to a player and there's a throw in for a player, you know, and there's a difference there. If the throw in's to the player, he gets it in the instant. He doesn't, doesn't hit the ground. The ground's a variable. And now that's a Brian Clough, that's not me. And if it's, if it's for the player, you throw it past him and he can run onto it. But if it's to him, it's not to hit the ground. But that's just another in, uh, instance. But... I think you work for someone or you work with someone. Now, I think if you're socially friendly with a person, it makes it much easier, obviously. And, you know, there are pairs, Clough and Taylor, you know, and, and their partnerships, they go together and they, they, they talk about them together, but they're they are personally friendly, these guys. And I was lucky in that I was personally friendly with... It wasn't Sir Alec, I've got to be, it was just Alec then. And when he was a young player and I was in the same Scottish youth team, you know, under 18 team with him. And I played with him and also played against him as a boy and I was friendly with him. So the dynamic was easy. And in fact, there is no way I should have been uh, ever, uh, I don't think, good enough to be invited to go with the Scotland team. When I was a young, you know, the, the club I was manager of uh, was a part-time semi-pro club called Clyde, Clyde Football Club. And they were in the second division. And uh, he took me as a second division manager to the World Cup on the staff. Now, the dynamic was easy because the other two coaches were uh, Premier League, one coach, Archie Knox, and the other one, Walter Smith. So the three coaches that he took to Mexico for the Scottish team going there when Jock Steen died and Alec got the job temporarily, 
So we invited, you know, it's an old pals act, three friends to be on the staff. And I was privileged that I was working. I was uh, working at a college of education and I had to get, he said, uh, I'll give you the phone call. Brun, Brun, they call me. How would you like the holiday of a lifetime? I said, that sounds good. Where are we going? <laughs> he says, we're going to Mexico to the World Cup if you can get off here. I said, but I need to get off my work. He says, ask them for a month's unpaid leave of absence and we'll pay you. And I thought, well, I'll be lucky to get it, but it's, it was a college of education. So it was the holiday time for the students. So the principal of the college thought it was an honour to go with the Scottish team to Mexico. And uh, the principals put it to the board of governors and I got paid leave of absence. Now, so therefore that was through the dynamic with Alec Ferguson was no problem because I was friendly with him as a, a young footballer. Uh, and we played in the youth team together. Uh, and of course, we go and on coach. The coaching was a great thing in Scotland. All the top managers, unlike in England at the time, see, Howard Wilkinson told me that in England he was technical director. It was very difficult initially to get the big name players to go to the coaching courses because I think they looked at the staff and they said, Who are these guys that are teaching us? Now, I'm talking about the Kevin Keegans, the Glenn Hoddles, and these guys who are England managers. It, it wasn't easy to get them to go on a coaching commitment. But in Scotland, it was easy because the, all the managers in Scotland, they looked at the staff and they saw on the staff Alec Ferguson. They saw uh, Jim McLean. They saw top, we, we brought up guy, Brian Kidd from England, uh, from Man City then, he was at Manchester United, on the staff. Now these, these guys were respected in Scotland, Alex Smith, uh, John Haggart, they were, they were all Premier League managers. So the, the players wanted to become coaches and go in the course. So you're asking me about Alec Ferguson, I was friendly with him because I played with him and also he was always interested in coming to the coaching events that we had. And of course, it was a good social event as well. So yeah, you mentioned you're allowed to drink at night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, on the subject of getting permits, you got your permit when you were working at the, uh, at the college. Yeah. How do managers nowadays manage a dressing room, Craig, full of millionaires? Well, I, I've got one of the talks I do is managing millionaires, and it's really, I've really said quite a bit about it with regard to the substitution thing. They don't like, you know, they're not uh, liking being substitutes. And very interesting, when I was with the Scottish team, we were in the European Championship in Sweden, and Andy Roxburgh was the manager. And I've got to give great credit to Andy because only eight teams qualified then for the European Championship. Only eight. And we were one of eight going to that. Another one was the Dutch team. And the, the Dutch team was looking for a manager. And the most famous manager in uh, Holland over the years was the former Ajax manager, Renus Michels. And they offered Renus, uh, and he, he said to Renus, they offered it, I think, first of all, to uh, Johan Cruyff, who was at Barcelona. And, and Johan Cruyff apparently wasn't been offered enough money to take the Dutch team to uh, the European Championship. And 
And I'll never forget this, Renus Michels, we met him, he took the job. He had to, nobody else, the, the players would not respond to anyone else. The Dutch players, two things you have to be, one, very wealthy, and that gets their respect, or a high-profile player like Cruyff. Very, well, in, in many cases, they're both, uh, they're both uh, compatible, <laughs> the wealth and the respect and the, the very good playing ability. So to be the manager of the Dutch team, you had to have that kind of aura about you. And they couldn't get anyone. They wanted to, even they asked Cruyff to do it, come from Barcelona and do it for the duration of the championship. And he was wanting too much money. So Renus had to take the job himself. And he was the main man. And so he, he was the manager of the team and they had Bert van Lingen as his assistant. So to manage millionaires, I think it, it would be easy if you're a millionaire yourself. <laughs> well, I, I was far from that. And I don't think any of the managers that, that involved with the Scottish team were, were millionaires at the time. They might well be now as well. So I don't think so. I'll be short, but, you know, uh, so you had to have a, to manage millionaires, I think you had to have a standing or you had to, get the respect and uh, you know you wonder about uh, you're saying how do you get the respect and I think if they see you're competent and good at your work you know your job and if you're honest and, and frank with them uh, you can manage them they won't and I've, I've always found in football management the bigger the star the bigger the, the star the easier it is to deal with and, you know, I remember in our dressing room when I was the assistant manager with Andy Roxford, just for a couple of games, he was nearly finishing his career, was Kenny Dalglish. Now, Kenny was a big star, eh, obviously, but Kenny was the most cooperative, willing guy. Joe Jordan, another one. Joe, you ask him to run through the brick wall, he would run through the brick wall. And the, I found that the bigger the star, and, and, and I noticed that with the Scottish team that went to Mexico, Graham Souness in that group, Gordon Strachan in that group, Frank McAvenny, the, these guys, Graham Sharp from, from Everton, you know, and then later on I had Big Duncan in the group from Everton. But so the, I find, and it's people don't believe this, they say, how do you handle these big stars? I said, they're the easiest ones to handle. It's a guy with two or three caps that's been in the toilet twice at Hamden. <laughs> I'll not say the way I say it, but I will say it. Well, I would say to him, you've had two shites at Hamden and you think you're a player. You know, that's a young uh, whippersnapper that thinks he's a player and he isn't. Whereas the big time players, they are the most cooperative, the most humble, the most enthusiastic. You know, you ask Gary McAllister to do anything, Colin Henry to do anything, and they do it instantly. They don't question it. And, it, and it's, I think it's a phenomenon that, that surprises the public. They think, whoa, how do you, 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 you were never an international player, Craig, how do you handle these guys? Well, I don't think about it like that. And I know that when I was a young player at, at Rangers, they were all stars, and I was put right in my place after three days and a very experienced older player said to me, I mean, I was only 17 and I was in that big dressing room and he said to me, come here, son, did you win a competition to train with the Rangers? <laughs> I thought, this guy doesn't think much of me. Now, I was in the, I was in the local paper, the, the national paper rather in, in Glasgow and it said, Brown, 
it's his Rangers signed the boy they all wanted. There was a photo of me. There I was. Now I was a wee nervous boy. And of course, I played in midfield, the same position as this guy. And uh, and he was a, a a bit of a bully, you know. I think certainly he bullied me. And he said, "Did you win a competition to train here after scene?" <laughs> so I don't think. I, one of the older players says, "I'll sort him." And I'll tell you, his name was Sammy Beard. It's not fair. He's deceased. It's not fair to talk about the deceased, but. Uh, a lovely wee guy called Johnny Hubbard, another winger. He says, "I'll sort of race South Africa. Leave him to me, Brownie." <laughs> so comes to the game, come come to the game on Saturday and listen to me. So after the game, and they were all it was a communal bath then. All the players in the bath, and we hubby Johnny Hubbard says to Sam to this big Sammy, but Sam, Sammy, and Sammy said, "What are you saying?" He said, "There was sixty-two thousand eight hundred and twenty-three there today," <laughs> and he's winking at me, the wee guy. And he's 62,823. And, and the big Sammy says, listen, the game's just finished. You're in this bath. You're telling me the size of the crowd. How do you know how many were there? He says, how do I know? He says, I was counting them, waiting for a pass from you, you greedy big rascal. <laughs> so, and he's winking at me, saying, I'll put him in his place. But so I was, you know, when I was young uh, in there, I was nervous. and then, but, but when I dealt with managing the millionaires, I found, was in, in actual fact a delight. And a lot of them have very, uh, you know, Kenny uh, uh, passed the ball to me once and I, I, I flicked it up and I was trying to control it. And I was, I was the coach as well, you know, I was the assistant manager. And I, I, I miscontrolled it. And I says, Kenny, get, give me it again. I'll get the old skill back. He says, you can't get back what you never ever had. <laughs> so I think that was good. Yeah, and you know he could say that, and you wouldn't take offence because he had a smile on his face when he said it, and uh, he knew that he knew you were a hopeless player, but he wasn't being uh, disrespectful. So I think to manage them, the one thing that they do mistake is kindness for softness. You know, if if you're if you're too kind and you're too fawning because they are big time players and you're a bit obviously insecure with them. They, they detect that and they'll, they'll take you to the cleaners then. But I think a bit of humour helps. You know, I'll give you the other Liverpool one that, say, you know, I had a fetish about standards and about them being smart and tidy. And, uh, you know, the jersey had to be in and the stockings had to be the same turnover and you sang the anthem. Everybody, you know, if you didn't know it, you learned it. And we taught you and you sang it, and maybe the, the proudest thing I can think of in my own time in that regard is the Scottish team lined up for the anthem before they played Brazil in the opening game of the World Cup. And if you look at that, you know, you, you, you know I'm telling the truth. When you look at it right along the road, every player is immaculate. The jersey's in, and they're all upright. We actually turned up for the game wearing the kilt, which was another, uh, I think example of standards. They were immaculate in the kilt. They were immaculate. Now, the only problem is there are certain things as a manager you can control. You can control, you hope anyway, you control their turnout, their, their timing, you know, their punctuality, their courtesy. You can control, you can't control a victory, unfortunately. <laughs> so the, 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 the problem is that you can control these things. Now, even the millionaire boys, you know, you line them up. And, and you say to them, every one of you singing this anthem, every one of you, you know, erect and, and respectful. 
to the, the nation and to the event that you're in, and no problem. Uh, so I think I don't think there's a there's no prescription for football or for management. No prescription at all. You've got your own personal feelings, but they know you've got a you've got a, a strength of character that you're not going to be messed about. <laughs> and uh, to manage millionaires is easy because they're millionaires because they were responsive over the years in football and they're at the top. Uh, and as I say, I think humour is helpful. And I said to Nicol, I was going to say to you, Stevie Nicol, I had this thing about the stockings and the tape that used to put round, they used to put white tape round the stockings. And it's not allowed now. They've got to have the same colour of tape. As you're, but they used to... So I saw them putting the white tape before an international match at, in Glasgow at Hamden. And I said, Stevie, that's unacceptable. And they looked at me. Oh, he says, we're at Liverpool. We've got red socks. And we put the white tape around the red socks. I said, Stevie, Stevie, this isn't a pub team Liverpool you're playing for. This is Scotland. You know, now, and he actually laughed and then he took the tape off. You know, a wee bit of, you know, I was say, jocularly miscalling Liverpool. That's a pub team you're playing for. This is Scotland. The standards here, you know. So, and of course, other things that, you know, I learned from the Liverpool boys, small things that they never ever had tracksuit bottoms at, at training under Shankly. And then when he, when he, uh, the, the subsequent manager after Bob Paisley and these guys, no, no tracksuit bottoms. So therefore it was great for me because I never liked tracksuit bottoms. Uh, you don't play in them. So why are you training in them? And they, they, where's the tracksuit bottoms? I said, how many European Cups have you won? Just look at Liverpool. They never have tracksuit bottoms. You know, a wee, uh, just a, if you get a wee quick back, if you're quick enough to be smart enough to say, and, oh, you know, and they've got no comeback then. I mean, we were in Russia, minus 11 degrees to play a game. And, and you know, one or two of the, the, the big hitters playing for Celtic Rangers, where are the tracksuit bottoms? I said, there aren't any. And I, there's one player asked the physio to take his side. Said, "Don't you dare!" And and then I, I, I would say to Nicol, Stevie Nicol, how many how many times you were tracksuit bottoms at Liverpool? Said, no, we don't get them. I said, "Are you guys at Celtic Rangers listening to that? How many European Cups have you won? You know now they, and, and just a wee line like that. Now of course Celtic have won the had won the European Cup first team in Britain to do so. But if you can be light-hearted, but but firm." And I think the, the millionaire management is relatively straightforward. Uh, mm. And you want millionaires in your team because you know they've been successful yeah. <laughs> at their clubs <laughs> to make a million. You mentioned, Craig, about the standards that you have. What importance do you put on attitude, trust and standards in, in building a team? Well, I, I, I was accused... One of the criticisms of me was that I was too insistent on standards and you know I, I was more concerned about the jerseys and looking smart and their attitude and their singing the anthem and shaking hands and courtesy coming off it you know being something more concerned about that I've two, two sons and they say would it not be better you put the emphasis on winning the game <laughs> <laughs> I said well I'd like to win the game as well but you can control certain things and you know I genuinely feel, and, and I think, I'm not sure, but I think it was Sir Alec that I heard a couple of times saying, the standards you set are the standards you get. 
Now, whatever you want, you're the manager. And the manager of a team is more powerful than any other manager. A manager of a football team has got more power than the manager in a business. Why? And the reason is simple, that if you're in a business and you're managing people, you pay them, you pay them. But when you're managing a football team, not only do you pay them, you select them week to week or international to international. So you've got two great powers. You've got the power of uh, power of payment and you've got the power of selection. And quite amazingly, I think to many people, you're, you're not in that category, but the people out there think that, uh, no, it's, it doesn't matter whether they're picked or not, they're getting some money, they're getting great money, but that every player has an ego and every player wants to get picked. So if you're the manager and you've got that power over them, the power of selection, as well as the power of, uh, of payment, you, you really have got a terrific control over these players because they want, they want to be selected. And every, and every week, you're put, if you're in a normal business, you're, you don't know how the business is doing until the, the balance sheet comes out annually. <laughs> you know, but you know every week how you're doing as a football manager because the result comes out and therefore, you know, but, but you've got the power. So you get the power over these, these players and the, the standards that you want are the standards that you get. And, and I, think, I think it was, uh, I think it was Margaret Thatcher way back when I was a football manager. She was a prime minister and they were saying to her, she's a bully, you're bullying this cabinet and you're doing it. And I remember, I remember, I wrote this down because I stopped. I was driving my car and she said, we were talking about her being powerful. In other words, she was using her power unfairly. And she said, to be powerful is to be like a lady. If you tell, if you to tell people you are, you aren't. Now, the day you have to walk into a football dressing room and say, shut up, I'm the manager. <laughs> You're lost. You've lost it because you've got the positional power. You can only lose it in two ways. And you can lose it, one, by being incompetent, and two, by being dishonest. So if you're honest and competent, you've still got that power. You'll lose it if one of these two goes and then the, the dressing room will just turn off and you've lost them. To be powerful is to be like a lady. If you have to tell people you are, you aren't. Now, you don't walk into the dressing room and say, shut up, I'm the manager. <laughs> you just go in and it's automatic. They sit down and they listen. In your time in the game, Craig, you've, you've come across... I'm sure you've come across lots of agents, football agents. Can you share with us your thoughts on their impact on the game as a whole? Well, I, th- I think a good agent has a good impact, a good influence, because he has influence on his players and he can control the players and he can control the players' attitude, standards, as, you know, as well as his, obviously his, his income. <laughs> he controls the income. But... A good agent, I think, is beneficial to a player. Now, when I was playing, I tried to play. We didn't have agents. And when I started uh, in management, we didn't have agents. The players, you dealt with the players yourself if, if you're the manager in, in terms of contracts and salaries and things. But, uh, you know, but the agents now have become quite, how can I put it? <laughs> Have become quite difficult to deal with, and because their their main concern is 
Uh, I'm, I'm a bit cynical here, but their main concern is how much they can get from the deal as much as how much the player can get. And is it in the interest of the player or is it in the interest of the agent? And you've got to be wary. There are wonderful agents, and don't get me wrong, out there, terrific guys who are agents of footballers. And we use the agent with the Scottish team in the player pool to get them additional benefits from selling the photograph or personal appearances. Now, the player wouldn't ask for that themselves. They need a representative. But I also had agents saying, would you pick my player, please? I says, well, I'll pick him if he's good enough. Oh, I said, why, why are you phoning me? He says, well, if he gets international cap, he gets a rise in his salary. And of course, that has an impact on the agent as well. Or he's got more chance of a transfer. So they were actually begging you to pick their player. Now, of course, I didn't take any and to do with agents like that. I said, I don't want to hear this. If, if you're asking me to pick your player, I don't want to hear the conversation because I'll pick the ones that I think are acceptable. The same, you will get agents phoning, wanting you to sign their player, you know, and they're actually uh, working behind the back of the, of the club he's playing for. But I think in the main, to get decent conditions, I think the players now have to have a, a, an honourable agent. And if they've got a good agent and he's honest and fair, that's okay. And that takes the player out of the equation when you're dealing with salary and things like that and the length of contract. But it's a totally different world. The football manager used to deal with everything. Now I think the football manager pushes that to the director of football or the, or the, maybe the vice chairman of the club or someone else. And he deals with the team and the coaching and the training and the selection of the team, not dealing with the agent. But, yeah. uh, you know, uh, there are some very fine agents. I'm not anything against them, but I think you've got to be wary and decide where his interest lies. Mm. And then some get reputation, uh, good and, and not so good, you know. <laughs> I'll not name names. <laughs> <laughs> now, Craig, when you've worked with new members of staff, how do you integrate them and how did you integrate them in your working environment and the way that you wanted things to be run? Well, I think they come into the environment and they see the environment. Now, it's unlikely you got a completely new staff all, all at one time. You know, but you'll, you'll go to a club and they might say to you, would you keep the staff we've got? And uh, then you have to take, you have to integrate them then, you, they're, they're there. But uh, usually you bring your staff or one or two members of staff with you at least. And therefore the, the standards that you have and the way you operate is known to them. And therefore, I don't think it's too big an issue. And I think they all know that your, your philosophy, the way you operate, and the way I operate is that it, it's a wee job. The manager's job is a wee job, not an I job. And I, I hate to say, here, I hate to say, here, manager saying, he'll play for me, or they played for me, or they did well for me. And, and it's just me in the eye. And I think you get a lot of great interviews from managers and they talk about we, and that is we meaning the club or the staff. And I got a very interesting telephone call after I did an interview. I don't remember what I was talking about, but the, the doctor of the Scottish team, Professor Hillis was his name, Stuart Hillis, Professor Stuart. 
the foremost cardiologist in Scotland phoned me up one day and he says, uh, after a game, he says, I want to thank you. I said, what are you thanking me for? He says, I heard your interview and you were talking about fitness of players and you called me by name. I said, no, why not? He says, nobody calls the doctor by name. They just say, the doc will have a look at him and tell me whether he's... He says, you said Professor Stuart Hillis will have a look at the player. And he says, I felt great when I heard that. Now, I learned from that that the staff, you're talking about staff, David, the staff want to be acknowledged. They want their name in the match programme. They want, if the, if the pitch is good, you want to say the groundsman, uh, Paul Fisk has done a very good job in this pitch. And therefore it was great. The players could pass the ball or the physio and name, uh, name them. Uh, and I think Alec Ferguson was very good at that. He, was, he would name names, you know, throw in the names of people and the like I mentioned. So if, if you're getting a new staff, you have info. I don't think a formal staff meeting, depending on how many, but you know, for half a dozen staff that you're dealing with, but I think that at Old Trafford, I think they've got, no, I might stay there, I think about 700 staff. <laughs> you know, if you're counting the stewards and the tea ladies and everyone that's working there. But for your football staff, your technical staff, you will probably know them in advance. But I think there's, it's a we thing, and we, what do we think here? And don't be too autocratic. But a manager can't be democratic. You know, you can't ask, you know, what do you think? What we do with him? You've got to be very decisive yourself. But I think it's a good idea to ask. And uh, in fact, it's, I think it's essential that you ask. And uh, I'll give you an example uh, of asking we had a Scotland B team as well as an A team. And I asked a, a man I mentioned earlier, Tommy Burns, who was the then manager of Kilmarnock. He was a Celtic manager and then Kilmarnock, a very well-respected guy. And I said, will you take the B team, uh, Tom? Certainly. And it was a one-off. It wasn't a, a job. It was just for this one game against Wales. So after the game, I said to him, any, any player I should pick? He said, yes, sir, there's one you should pick. And this, this conversation with Tommy Burns kept me in a job, I think, because I was, I was more than willing to ask opinions and, and respect the opinion that he gave me. I said, Tom, any player in that B team that I should put in the first team? Because we had a game that same night. I didn't see the B game. And I hadn't seen it on the, the television since. So I said, any, he says, yes, there's one that you should, you should put in your first team. And... And I said, uh, who's that? He says, Don Hutchison. And I says, oh, no, no, no. We've got, our midfield's the strongest part. We've got better midfield than Don Hutchison. I mean, I've got uh, McAllister. I've got Collins. I've got McCall, Stuart McCall. And I've got these guys and Paul Lambert coming through. He's one of your Champions League, Lambert, with Bruce Dortmund. I said, you'll not get a game. He says, no, I'm not talking about midfield, Craig. I'm talking about up front. Oh, I says, I never knew he was a striker. He says, well, I didn't either, but we were we were struggling a bit in Wales and I put him up front in the second half. He was brilliant. <laughs> he said he did everything a striker you would want a striker to do. Scored, headed, he, he, he held it in. And he, he gave a great... I said, well, that's, that's a good bit of advice. Thanks very much, Tom. The next week or two weeks later, we were playing Germany. In Germany. I put him up front 
on Tommy's recommendation. This is where you're talking about staff. And we had a wee bit, uh, I think McCoist was injured. He was the main striker at the time. So took him out, put Hutchison up front. We beat Germany 1-0. Who scored the goal? Don Hutchison. We go to England in a playoff at Wembley. We're 2-0 down at home in Scotland, at Hamden. Scholes has scored two goals for England. We go to Wembley. We beat England 1-0. Who scores the goal? <laughs> Their striker, Don Hutchison. So maybe my two best away results with the Scottish team. And, and, and I had 70 games with the Scottish team. And maybe the two best results were two goals scored. We beat Germany in Germany and England in England. And that would, I would never have won those games. Well, I would never have played Hutchison up front had it not been for asking a member of staff for advice or for his opinion. So I think you can't be too dogmatic and think that you can do it on your own. And I've, I've been privileged to have super guys to assist me. Uh, Dalek Miller, who was assistant at Liverpool with Rafa Benitez. Uh, he was uh, with me with the Scottish team. I had Archie Knox, who was assistant twice with Sir Alec, uh, Archie. Uh, and even under 21 team, I had another good player who played in England, 15 years in England, Tommy Craig, played for Sheffield Wednesday and uh, for Newcastle. And he was uh, the assistant coach. I had Ross Matthew with the under 21 team. So I've always said it's not a one-man job, the, the football manager's job. The one man tends to have to do all the media work and the talking. But it's a wee job and not an eye job. So that's a long-winded answer to David's question. No, I think what you've done is you've uh, you provided lots of colour and lots of detail with the experiences as well, uh, Craig. So what's been very evident there is is it's not an assistant, my assistant and I. It's you're working with a person you know to identify that person. Keith, I always call him colleague, not assistant. Yeah. Your assistant's a demeaning title. My colleague. And, and I, I hate to hear that, my assistant. I'll put my assistant on that one. And that. I, I, when I was talking about substitutes, I missed my, 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 my favourite example, and it's a quick one. The only game of the European Championship in year 2000, and it was in Holland, Belgium, combined countries hosted it. And the opening game was in Amsterdam, and it was the host country against Italy. And I was doing commentary for the BBC. Uh, and I therefore, I was looking at the paper in the morning when I was over there to see if I could get the teams. And I, I got the Italian paper, the pink one, Gazzetta della Sport. And, it was, and the headline was Totti. Totti, his first game, will replace Del Piero. And I thought, you can't be, they can't be doing that. The first game in the, in the Europe, they're, they're bringing in this young lad from Roma, this Totti. Well, I watched the game and I was a good seat right behind the dugout, behind the, the technical area. And there was Del Piero on the bench and Totti was playing. Six minutes into the game, Totti scored for Italy. And who was the first man jumping out the dugout, punching the air like that? Del Piero. And I always say to players, there's an example. That's what I call a really good team player, uh, Del Piero. Um, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to remember. Dino Zoff was the manager. And Zoff was up. But, but the first man out of the dugout was the man who was replaced by the young boy, Totti. And he was punching the air. And I thought, 
That is terrific. That's what you call team spirit and a great attitude. And I'm sure he would say to him in the dressing room, encourage him and not make him feel that he was uh, resentful. Mm. Oh, Craig, in work, in your experience of working in high performance environments, what do great managers need to stay great? <laughs> Victories. <laughs> <laughs> you know, success. Only success makes them great, isn't it? But there's a, there was a lovely wee manager of Israel called Joe Mirmovich, and I'll tell you, his best pal in England was Bobby Robson. Sir Bobby Robson, I love Bobby Robson. And I, I used to try and any chance I get a game or talk to him because Bobby was brilliant. And uh, this wee Joe Mirmovich was the manager of Israel. And I think he was Bobby's best pal abroad anyway, because every time I was at a court, I used to go to these coaching sessions with the uh, AFCA, it's called, Alliance of European Football Coaches Association. Mm. And I'm in the committee there, and, and Bobby was in the committee, and, and we Joe Mermovich. And what does a manager need to say successful? And Joe's, Joe's catchphrase, how are you doing, Joe? How are you doing? What's your catchphrase today? And I knew it. I guess it. And his catchphrase was, one goal more, <laughs> one goal more. <laughs> so, so what does a manager need to be successful? One goal more. <laughs> you don't get better than. And of course, Bobby Robson used that one as well. Jocularly, Bobby says, "If I, if I can always have Joe's uh, catchphrase with my with my teams, one goal or more will do me." But uh, I think you know to stay successful, you've got to. I, I said earlier that uh, you know you can only lose the respect, or the, the power that you've got if you're one of two things: if you're incompetent or dishonest. Now. You'll, you'll remain, I think, you'll stay if you're competent and you're honest. Uh, I think these are the two things that, I, I mean, there's no, there is no, definitely no prescription for management. Now I know, and, and certainly in most of Europe, I know them all, I've heard, I've heard them all speak. And in fact, the best talk I ever heard was Carlos Alberto Pereira, the manager of Brazil, won the World Cup in 94. And I heard them give a lecture, it was fabulous. Uh, I mean, the the philosophy that he had was brilliant, and he said, "Brazil, here's one for you." And if you're a football aficionado at all, Brazil have the best players in the world and always have had. Nobody dis disagrees with that. But for 24 years, 24 years they didn't win the World Cup with the best players in the world, and that was the start of his talk. And he said, "You know." It was 1994, 1970 they won it, and then they won it in 1994 in America. And he said, I, he was in the, in the job at that time, Carlos Alberto Pereira. And he said, they didn't win it, they're the best players, but they had no organization without the ball. They, they didn't know what to do when they hadn't the ball, and they had a serious lack of discipline in the camp and among the national team. I mean, they were agents coming in, <laughs> there were wives coming in to the, to the hotel. And he said, it was just, we were in the World Cup in Italy and in the middle of a team meeting, a, a hotel a girl from the hotel came in and shouted at a player, your wife's, your wife's at the airport, you'll need to come. She's, want, she's wanting to, to get a taxi. You know, now this is in the middle of a team meeting. So he said, that was, a, had to be sorted. 
And once we get the discipline of the, the, the operation sorted, and the other thing they did to help sort that was no agents, no, no one in the hotel except the team, you know, and, and try and get a hotel. And we, we did this with the Scottish team at the World Cups, try and get a hotel that you're in and there's no one else in it. It's not a huge hotel and you're taking 30 rooms. You know, you get a small hotel and you take over the whole hotel so that you've got that amount of control. These experiences that when I heard Carlos Pereira speak, his talk was not, not just about tactics and how they did it. Why they held hands going out the Brazilian team, they used to hold hands. That was, a, that was a wee superstition they had. And they explained all that, but that takes too long. But so I think, you know, the, the, there's no, I keep saying there's no answer, but to last longevity in the game is you've got to be successful and you'll stay. You're, if you're a nice guy, it'll help you, but it'll not get, keep you in a job. You've got to be successful. You've got to win the games. And you've got to be aware that when you're dealing with players, the leopard doesn't change its spots. If, if you make a mistake, if you're a manager and you think, he'll not play for that guy, but I'll get him to play for me because I'm a strong man or I'm a nice guy, you know, and, and it doesn't work that way. You know, I think there's only one major example I can think of. Maybe Cantona came from Leeds to Manchester United, but he still... He still went under control at Manchester United. He still went over and kicked the guy in the crowd at Crystal Palace, if you remember. But so, so what I'm saying is, the leopard doesn't change. <laughs> you know? I'm, I'm giving an example of where, under a strong manager, uh, Sir Alec, he still, you know, he still had a wee mental aberration. I think, if that's the way I'll put it, uh, he lost it a wee bit, but. By and large, I think the leopard doesn't change. And, and I think a manager thinks he can change a player and I'll make him work for me because he won't work for that. I think that's a big mistake because I think they don't change by and large. Now, Craig, we, we had a, a conversation last week uh, and you spoke uh, about Craig Burley and a little experience with uh, McCoyst where Craig Burley had to... Had to come off. Yeah, well, humour is a great that's thing. Right. I mean, that's, a, that's, another, that's another hour if we start to talk about humour. <laughs> you know, when you've got a guy, and I made a huge mistake, uh, or one of the, one of my mistakes that is, I'm prepared to admit to and acknowledge the fact that when I went to the World Cup, we, I was in two successive competitions as a manager with Scotland and when Euro 96 and McCoyce was in the squad and scored a fine goal at Villa Park against Switzerland and played well in the in the, the games uh, McCoyce but when it came to the World Cup 98 he hadn't played a lot he'd been injured and I didn't take him now that was a serious mistake because you know he he, he was even if he wasn't in the, in the pitch he was in the camp and he was in the dressing room and the, he, he's, the, the atmosphere he engenders and the humour and what have you. But anyway, we were playing before the World Cup in, in France in 98. We played a friendly with France. France had, hadn't to qualify 
they're the host country, so they don't need to qualify. So they're looking for easy friendlies to get some confidence that we'll play Scotland. <laughs> so I said, well, we'll only play them if we if we get playing in one of the stadia that we're playing the matches in. So we're playing at the part, the, you know, the part of the Bronx in Paris, the opening game, and then we're playing in Bordeaux and we're playing in St Etienne. So if you can give us one of these three, we'll play France. I thought that was quite wise to get the feel of the place. So we'll play at St Etienne against France. So we go to, to play them. Now, this is the team. They hadn't to qualify, but they eventually won that World Cup in 98. France won it. So we're sitting there having a team meeting and I said to Burley, who was in our team, I said, Burley, you've got a job here. You know, and, and some players, you call them by their first name, but nobody called Burley Craig. You know, they, they all call him Burley, you know. And uh, you see, McCoy's sees Ali, because Ali's a kind of affectionate term, you see. And uh, <laughs> so I'm talking to the team and I say, Burley, you've got a job here today. I've just looked at their team. If number 10 crosses a halfway line in possession of the ball comfortably and you don't whack him, it's to get that. No, nothing dirty, just just give him a, a, a heavy slap so that he knows you're there, you know. <laughs> I said, he's number 10, his name is Zidane, so I want you to sort him out, right? So, <laughs> big head, nodding, aye. So, the game started. Now, McCoy, to let you understand, McCoy's on a substitute, he's on the bench. And uh, right in front of us, within three minutes of play, Zidane get the ball and Burnley, whack. I mean, it was, he did ins as instructed. It was a brutal assault. It wasn't an attack, it was an assault. And down went, and there was a squeal from Zidane, down he went, and this wee uh, Spanish referee had good English. He called him over. He says to Burnley, you were very late there, number eight. And Burnley, I, that was another thing I used to say to players, be polite. It might mean the difference between a yellow and a red. So he says, hey, I'm sorry. He says, you were late. He says, I'm sorry, I got as early as I could. <laughs> and the wee referee says, well, and he holds up this yellow card. Well, oh, I thought, well, that's a relief. I thought we were going to have to play 87 minutes with a, a man shot. So he holds up the yellow card and uh, McCoy shouts on, you know, if you remember, I don't know if you guys would remember, Burley played and he had false teeth at the front. And he took them out to play. So he had just two fangs there. And uh, McCoy shouts, hey, Burley. Burley looks over and says, one more tackle like that, pal. You'll be joining your teeth in the dressing room. <laughs> so, which, you know, which enlightened that a wee bit. But anyway, the game, the game played. And at halftime, we were down one. It were a goal down. It's one nothing for France. So the start of the second half, I said to McCoy, McCoy said, get yourself warmed up. You see? And I said to the physio, take his pulse when he's when he's warmed up. So uh, McCoy starts to warm up. Now, when he's warming up, I'm taking Gordon Jury off, the, the other striker uh, who's on in preference to him. And Jury scores the best goal I've seen Scotland score in my time. You know, he hit one from outside the penalty ball right into the roof of the French net. <laughs> and I'm taking him off. So I thought, oh, no. When a guy scored a goal, uh, you're a psychologist, you, you know, you're talking about when a guy has scored, the next time he shoots, the goal's twice his size. You know, it's, it's the same as if a guy scored with a penalty. The next time, you know, they, it's easy the next time to get the goal. Or you should think it would be anyway. Anyway, Jury has just scored a great goal and I'm taking them off. And I thought, no, no, I'm, I'm going to change that. So McCoy's warming up and he's running past me. I says, Coy, stay. And I shout, you know, and he looks over and I said, hey, 
we'll just leave it just now. We'll leave it just now. Just take a seat. And he looked over and he shook his head. He said, what? He says, jury, one goal in six years. It's prolific, bloody prolific. <laughs> but you see, only only McCoy could get away with that. If some, if another player said it, it would be present. It'd be cheeky, you know. It would be get. But McCoy, you can't you can't be angry when he says one goal in six years, and you're leaving them on. <laughs> but so I think the, the humour that he would bring to a dressing room was worth its weight in gold. And I, I'm the fool that didn't take him to the World Cup. Because he had, I think he played only eleven games all season, and it would have been an old pals act, and an old pals act is acceptable, but uh, I think it's not uh, to be used at the international level. Although with hindsight, I did make a mistake. Yeah, you said did I read a book earlier? The, the best book I've read was a book. Well, one book that I thought was a book. So it's written by Eduardo Galeano, "Football in Sun and in Shadow," and. Uh, there's a wee caption at the beginning and I thought it was a brilliant caption talking about football it says we lost we won either way we had fun mm. and I mean my lifetime has been football and I mean at my advanced years octogenarian years you know I've been the luckiest guy in the world because I've had fun all the time involved in football we lost we won either way we had fun and uh, I think that sums up the world of football for me. And now, as I say, the good fortune I've had to be involved in the game and to still be involved at Aberdeen with a good club in Scotland uh, is a great privilege. And it's been a great privilege to be involved in the game. Craig, on, on that, it's been an absolute privilege having you with us this morning we've thoroughly enjoyed your anecdotes your stories the honesty and sharing your knowledge and experience uh, so we we can't thank you enough so on behalf of david and myself it's been an absolute pleasure thank, thank you very much yes i've enjoyed being with you gentlemen thank you Thanks for tuning in to the Golders podcast today. If you enjoyed this episode and you haven't already subscribed, please do so. Your continued support is highly appreciated and it means so much to us knowing that the content that's being produced is providing value in people's lives. If you would like to know more or get more information from us, you can follow us on Twitter at Gold Dust Podcast, and also you can visit our website at the Gold Dust Coach. Dot com. Thank you, everybody.